banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of... Dude, 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 dude. Is dude suitor? El Duderino? Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Everybody is and now, here's the dudes. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried... Seven Thunders uttered their voices. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Legion of Dudes presents Kingdom Come, issue number three. I am your host, Mr. Jim Dietz, and I am joined tonight by Adam Umack, Adam Reed, and the illustrious Ken Morgan. How are you doing tonight, guys? I am well. How are you? I am tanned, rested, and ready, just like Nixon in the 70s. (laughs) Just got back from vacation in a ghost town. It was awesome. There was an arcade at the end of my street, and I got a lot of good flea market scores. But that's beside the point. We're here to read Kingdom Come number three. And I would like to say before we get on with the festivities that the Legion of Dudes will be in full effect at Steel City Con in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on April 24th, 25th, and 26th. Check it out at SteelCityCon.com. Uh, we will be hosting a uh, geek throwdown on Friday night at my restaurant, Gypsy Cafe, starting about 9.30 uh, at night. Free food, free beverages, a lot of geeks. We're going to have some Guitar Hero. We're going to have some cosplay models. It'll be a really good time. So if you're in the neighborhood and you're geeky, come on by. And then uh, on Saturday, we're going to be hosting, uh, along with Comic Geek Speak, a, um, a trivia contest uh, with questions of the illustrious uh, Adam Murdo. So you know they're going to be tough. But uh, we'll have prizes to give away. We'll have roller derby girls from the Still City Derby Demons asking some of the questions. And maybe a few uh, guest stars and surprises. But uh, Still City Con, April 24th, 25th, 26th. Uh, check out the website, uh, stillcitycon.com. And come on by and say hi to the LOD. And speaking of saying hi to the LOD, we have some comments from our last episode. Uh, Adam, you uh, have those on tap? Yeah, um, we've got uh, three new listeners uh, who have joined the forums, and uh, we want to run down some Kingdom Come comments from issues uh, one and two that we've done. Smog writes in, Part of the thing that I don't like about the story is the treatment of John Jones, a.k.a. Martian Manhunter. I think he's a vital part of the universe, and like usual, he gets (laughs) screwed over. I like Kingdom Come as an Elseworlds tale, which is why it ticks me off that the concepts of it are finding their way into mainstream DC Universe. I like to think of it as more as a future of DCU gone bad, but not necessarily ours. Of course, with so many crisis, crises and reboots, who the heck knows which DCU I'd be referring to? That's why I like the changes some of the main heroes have gone through. The Flash is merging, Hawkman turning into something more than human, and Green Lantern's identity a mystery. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. Thanks, Mog. Um, one uh, kind of like a quick uh, footnote to that. Uh, it's... It's hard to figure out like who the Flash is. That it really is Wally, and it's 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 not uh, Kater Hall, who's Hawkman either. And we don't find out until you read the um, bonus material in the back of the book that the Green Lantern is actually Alan Scott and um, John Stewart. Hal Jordan and Kyle are nowhere to be found. The next one comes from African Avenger. Thanks again for joining. I actually like the harsh way they treated John Jones. Heck, he gets his own page. Who else can brag about that? Orion, Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, that's it. 
It seems that that would be his fate in the future, since he always wanted to know every aspect of the human condition. It's very saddening, though, and seeing how Martian Manhunter appreciates Earth more than most of its native heroes, it stinks that he couldn't have a major role in the battle. However, it would have been hard to have him choose between Batman and the Justice League. Another thing that somewhat bothered me is that Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel were missing from the whole book. This is sensible because Billy steals the show, but a lot of ties between dysfunctional families were alluded to or shown, like the Flashes, the Queen Clan, the Green Lanterns, and the Batman family. If they saw him at the Gulag battle, wouldn't they have tried to confront him? If your brother and partner just uh, disappeared for a few years, aren't you interested in finding out where he went? Just wondering. I know Alex Ross added the page on the new guts to deepen the story, but a page about the Marvel clan wouldn't have hurt. Of course, this takes a lot of time for preparation, so of course you have to leave some stuff out. Our last comment comes from... Yeah, if you, uh, just, just real quick, if you have the uh, Absolute Edition with the Apocrypha in the back, there are character designs for Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel uh, Jr., who calls himself King Marvel, and kind of uh, um, patterned his costume after the latter-day Elvis. Um, but if you look in the Absolute Edition, uh, in the Apocrypha in the back of the book, there are those character designs that just don't make uh, part of the story. And as the uh, resident uh, John Jones fan among the dudes, I agree that while it does make sense for uh, his fate to be what it is in the Kingdom Come, I was kind of sad they didn't have a larger role considering you know what a big part of the Silver Age he was. He, he does kind of have a really big role in the other Alex Ross series that uh, just got solicited for the absolute treatment, which would be uh, Justice. I mean, he and Grodd and Luthor kind of steal the show at the last couple chapters of it, so... You know, I, I think Alex Ross definitely made good on the Martian Manhunter end of things. Last That's one comes. Cool. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Check that out. The last uh, comment we've got um, for today comes from another new listener, Jeremiah Burns. He says, "Hey, dudes, I was listening to episode one of Kingdom Come while on the train to Manchester the other day. Brilliant. I hadn't even considered requesting that you do a comic, but I'm glad Kingdom Come was your first request because it's definitely the one comic I could possibly imagine requesting myself. It's great." Like many, my intro to Alex Ross was Kingdom Come, and now I'm a huge fan of his. It's because of Mr. Ross that I am writing. Something that's always struck me about Ross's art is the fact that so many of the faces look familiar, particularly Bruce Wayne in Kingdom Come, but also Superman and a plethora of other DC characters as drawn by Ross as well. It's something I've never been able to put my finger on. Perhaps it's simply down to the ultra-realistic styling, but it's like they remind me of Hollywood actors I ought to know. You know when you watch a film and you recognize an actor's face as having been in another film you've seen them in, but you can't quite place it? That's the feeling when I get when I look at Ross's art. I don't know if I'm alone in feeling this way, but I like that feeling. It makes my favorite heroes seem more real. Keep up the fabulous work, and Jeremiah, thanks very much. Okay, so if you were a fan of uh, Tim Sale's Black and White's art book kind of uh, portfolio, and if you also like the Dave Gibbons book, Watching the Watchmen, I think uh, we can unanimously recommend uh, Alex Ross's mythology art book. Uh, it's more or less everything up into uh, the run on Justice that he did for DC Comics. And that includes Uncle Sam. That includes, I mean, I'm just going to say like 10 times more info on Kingdom Come than is actually in the Absolute Edition, which is pretty cool too. So we'd uh, absolutely recommend that uh, for you guys to check out for all you art junkies out there. And how couldn't you be at this point with Alex Ross's stuff? We're going to toss it back over to Jim in just a second, but we've got our buddy Bill McGonnell from A Half Hour Wasted on the line. What's up, Bill? You ready for number three? Uh, good evening, fellas. Good evening. Yes, I'm ready for issue three. Oh, by hook and by, hook and by crook. I'm half sunburned because we enjoyed uh, Rangers opening day today. So hopefully uh, I'm not uh, time-stamping the show too badly. Okay, well, it's well, great that you're sunburned because right now I'm looking out my window and it's snowing and the wind is about 25 miles an hour and it's about... 
on the 30 degrees. So, thanks. Yeah, it um, it was cold and blowy uh, down here in uh, Texas too. Wow, it was nice inside the stadium itself, but uh, boy, it was a howling out there on the plane. And in movie news, Iron Man Two begins shooting today. Really? <laughs> Absolutely, That's great news. Okay, so have they finally replaced that stiff Robert Downey Jr. with a good actor? Just oh. kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, they put in Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, man, I wish I'd seen that movie so I'd quote a line from it at this appropriate time, but oh, well. <laughs> good stuff. So, um, Jim, Chapter 3 is called Up in the Sky. Why don't you take it, man? Okie doke. Well, we start uh, Chapter 3 with the... Uh, the quote the, from Revelations that I just quoted at the beginning of the show and a uh, beautiful Alex Ross painting of Captain Marvel uh, summoning the lightning, calling down the lightning, the seven thunders that uttered their voices, as it were. And we go to the next panel, and we see that this is another part of Norman's visions. And he, he struggles with the specter, saying, well, this must be the road to Armageddon then, because that's what these visions, I mean, how else, what else could it be? And the specter tell, you know, tells him that I do not lead you. You lead me. Which is interesting if you think about it because the specter originally grabbed Norman to be the judge. And, and Norman didn't even know what he was being the judge of. And now by the third issue, he's telling Norman that he is leading him. That the specter is not, it's not like the specter is giving him a guided tour of the DCU. Norman is leading him somehow to make some sort of, you know, determination. And on, uh, Page three, we see, and it's right here in the caption box, all too familiar, a certain structure that is a very near and dear to some of our hearts here. It's the, uh, the old dome from the Legion of Doom, from the Super Friends. It's got a few uh, gigaws and doodads attached to it, but uh, it's definitely the, uh, the dome that used to be in the swamp, Legion of Doom from the old Super Friends cartoon. Wow, that's so great. What's hey, up? Uh, that's just a wink and a nod to those of us who watched it back in the 70s or... Are they? Yep. They're not actually trying to say that uh, that somehow that uh, that structure uh, does in fact uh, uh, ring bells to people on Earth twenty two, does it? No, it should. I think just, that's just like the Hall of Justice that was from the Challenge of the Super Friends. I think uh, this this is the same thing. Uh, you know, this is where evil is housed. You know, and um, I, I'm looking at this right now, and man, I'm smiling. This is such a cool page, and it's such a cool idea to, to include it too. You know, like. And I don't know, maybe this is just my supervillain personality, but, you know, I couldn't help but smile when Sinestro came back in Rebirth. And I can't help but smile right now when I'm looking at the Hall of Doom. That's, that's just great. <laughs> oh, it is great. It is great. Totally great. It makes you wonder if uh, Orion and them uh, watched uh, Super Friends cartoons from a uh, parallel Earth uh, uh, while they were conceiving this or something. <laughs> I'd like to think so anyway. I guess from Superman's point of view, it is full of supervillains, just like from the Super Friends cartoon. I think the inside is almost uh, more impressive than the outside. The outside is pretty impressive, too. This is just that opening shot. Uh, are they trying to make it look like Themyscira, or, uh, or are they just trying to make it look nice for all the people? So it certainly seemed they, they went out of their way to make it, make it a, a pretty, pretty lush interior there. It's this immense sense of scale on page three uh, with Norman Inspector in the foreground. And then you get an even more immense sense of scale when you are inside the gulag. So what we see the people flying around. And uh, uh, we see also a picture of a lot of, of some of the other inmates in the gulag all under surveillance. All under the watchful eye, as we see on the next page, of Mr. Scott Free, Mr. Miracle. Uh, who, who better to, uh, to build the ultimate prison than... Uh, 
the ultimate escape artist. You know, if you think about it, I mean, yeah, I he's almost really, overqualified. I thought that was really cool to have him, uh, the warden type character for that. Yeah, just with with who he is and everything. That's really cool. Now, who are who is who is housing housed in this facility? Are they actual supervillains or are they just powered individuals who did not decide to go along with Clark? I guess it's people who didn't want to join the initiative. To borrow from another story, right? You're right. This is the negative yep. zone to uh, from Secret Invasion to it's parallel. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, okay. I mean it's, it's you know good, bad, or indifferent. If they didn't go along with Justice League, they're in the gulag. You know, pretty much no matter what their past was up to that point, so I'm not, guessing. They're not necessarily criminals. They just didn't toe the line. Yeah, didn't toe uh, Superman's line. Uh, Superman's line uh, um, helped exception uh, by uh, our own Lady Macbeth in the story, uh, Wonder Woman. That super that the when they you know they said there was fear in the room among the humans, I don't. And we were, we came to the surmise that it wasn't fear so much of the super uh, heroes or super villains, but that they were all on a united front. And like you're saying, you know, if they aren't worthy of Superman's code of ethics or they aren't trying to adhere to that, then uh, they are thrown into this gulag. You know. And how they um, one of the uh, one of the oppressed in the gulag. Um, I guess I'm I'm a page before this happens, but uh, you know his rebuttal seems to you know have some fairly serious merit to it. And I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. I guess we'll get to that here in just a second. No worries. I wanted I did want to point out on page five though the second panel of uh, Magog in his cell. They uh, referred to him as the Repentant. Um, I think after his confrontation with Superman in the last issue. He just realizes, you know, the the harm he's done, and uh, you know, he tried to step into Superman's shoes, and was left, you know, was found wanting, you know, because of his different code of ethics and his different, you know, uh, modus operandi, if you will. Sorry, it makes me wonder if he's uh, on his own in that panel by choice or by um, Superman or, or uh, Scott Free's choice. Is he repentant and alone uh, of his own volition? Because it seems like. Uh, uh, if I was Superman, I would want him out there uh, in the general population being repentant and trying at least indirectly to swing some people over to Superman's side. Seems like a wasted opportunity. But I certainly understand if it's his decision to uh, go ahead and um, hermit himself, go go find his cage and go uh, old Ben Kenobi on us. <laughs> and as we see Magog uh, repentant in his cell, the next two panels we see a giant holographic projection of Superman trying to teach the ethic, his style of superhero ethics to the uh, inmates of the Gulag. And uh, we especially see, uh, we see 666, we've seen before. We also see uh, Von Bach, we've seen before. Stripes, we've seen before. And they start, uh, they start talking to the giant projection of Superman, you know, trying to defend their own existence, as it were, as, you know, pseudo-heroes or whatever. Stripe looks at the, uh, his name, isn't it Stripe? I mean, it's, it's this version of Stripe, like Stars and Stripe. Um, looks right. at the, I don't know. Looks up at the hologram and is like, who bagged Eclipso? Who got rid of Rachel Ghoul? Guys like us, that's who. We saved lives. So they're trying to defend their approach to superheroing, uh, trying to justify themselves. And then the rebellion gets a little too far. 666 throws a paving stone at the hologram, and out comes the 1960s Silver Age hero, uh, Captain Comet, who is the... Uh, the policeman, as it were, or the prison guard, I guess, of the uh, the prisoners here. Thank you. I was trying to figure out who that was. I just I wonder if this the scene here with Superman and the uh, the projection does it? Does Superman think it's doing what he thinks it's doing? I mean, it's 
purpose is benign. His purpose is to re-educate and not to simply punish. I, I, I take him face value uh, for his statement there, but I just I kind of think like so many good ideas in this world, he does not take into account human nature, and this ends up being a, uh, a fairly large miscalculation, just this whole approach by him, how it's supposed to do anything but, uh, but harden the people inside and make them more bitter. Um, I think it's just a, a tremendous miscalculation on his part, and so... Um, he thinks he's trying to defuse the situation and, and reason with these people, and it turns out that, you know, fairly obviously, he's doing nothing more than adding to the tension, adding to the sense of oppression of the people inside, uh, many of whom um, honestly think that they have no business being in there. Some of the people are even deluded, um, I, I think, in thinking they shouldn't be there, like uh, 666. But yeah, it, uh, it ends up turn out fairly badly, and you can just see, you know, it makes you wonder how Superman, you know, ever thought this was going to be any kind of um, uh, long-term solution. Not only considering the fact that what was supposed to have been a slow ramp up and should have had room for people for months, according to this book, overcrowded instead of what two weeks. So, you know, how is that anything but a recipe for you know a superpowered implosion of some sort? You know, how is this ever going to have worked out anyway? But this, and it's interesting that our heroes. Uh, didn't consider these fairly simple tenets of human nature and how easily uh, they were led into this. They basically put themselves in the position where this Armageddon-like uh, conflict was inevitable. I think it just it shows how distant Superman is. I mean, before this, with him being out of the picture or away for in self-exile for 10 years, in that time, he, he doesn't know. He's almost become sees himself as more of a, a godlike fi- figure and he and he's telling people this is how you do it you know i do it right and, and he doesn't really think about how people are going to react to that because he's not used to people reacting or, or dealing with people do you think he's um taking wonder woman's counsel to his own detriment i mean do you think he's thinking this through you know for himself or is he kind of letting himself be led down a path that he may you know ultimately want to get led down you know, instead of actually thinking out to this this situation's logical conclusion, you know, is he just kind of taking you know Wonder Woman's ideas kind of on faith and and just kind of you know not doing his his due diligence, I guess, not considering you know how this is all going to uh, play out badly for sure. Well, I seem to think a couple things. First of all, I I don't really subscribe to the idea that Wonder Woman is his Lady Macbeth, and I don't really subscribe to the idea that that Clark is blind to this? Because, I mean, how is this, I mean, really, how are, are their actions, like, any different from any other issue of uh, Justice League of America? I mean, their task is to protect, and it's obvious that these people can't control themselves. It's obvious they have yeah. a, you know, disregard for everything that's going on. So I, I think, and this is kind of my theory with Kingdom Come, if you guys flip to the page that Jim was talking about with Scott Free, okay, Right above Scott's head, when we get the splash of the gulag interior, okay, there is a, a blue demon, okay, and this this character, which I believe to be a cross, kind of he's kind of like a physical statue, like Von Bach, but at the same time, he looks like a blue devil, kind of like updated and modernized, kind of like how a robot banner cyborg was. Okay, this character was modeled. Did you guys see the movie Fantasia from Disney, the musical? Have you guys seen yeah, Fantasia? Yeah, it's been a long time. Okay. Yeah, one, of the a, segments, yeah, a long time. one of the segments on Fantasia was called Night on Bald Mountain. 
and it starts with a gigantic mountain, and then the mountain starts moving, and it reveals itself to be a demon that's kind of like perched at the top of the mountain. And the whole kind of running theme with Night from Bald Mountain is kind of like a witch's Sabbath and mischief-making, kind of like on Halloween. And, you know, the opening shots not only have, like, this demon uh, waking up, but likewise it has a bunch of, you know, skeletons arising from the grave, riding on horseback, really, really freaking morbid stuff, okay? And I would totally liken this to the scene outside of Wesley Dodd's apartment in issue one, or excuse me, hospital room in issue one, because it's like, it's kind of like the witching hour aspect of things, because everything's kind of like rising, you know, and they don't dare yet come out in broad daylight to like wreak havoc. They do eventually when Superman comes in, but I think, you know, he's, I, I think he, Clark is definitely dealing with the criminal element. It's just that this criminal element is probably more gray than you've ever seen it. So I don't. I, I think it's important not to let the, not to let those wild cards, not Captain Marvel, but the wild cards like Six 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 or Von Bach or Joker's daughter. Don't let them seduce you to think that Clark is anything less than the right thing to do. In other words, like don't hold Clark's decision against him because he's dealing with an animal that, frankly, doesn't exist in the DC universe as we know it. This is, you know, like, like they said, uh, like one of our forum comments said, this isn't your grandpa's DC universe. This is your grandkids' DC universe. And this is how many generations removed from us, too. I mean, we'd be all old codgers and stuff by then. We'd all be wheeled up to in the uh, Golden Bowles retirement home. You know, they'd be mashing up pills <laughs> in our applesauce to keep us quiet. We'd be up there rolling with Wesley, you know? So I think that, like, don't, don't call... Not to stop telling you what to do, you know what I mean? But it's like, don't call Clark and Diana extremists and let Bruce get off the hook when you've got a whole bunch of crazies running around, you know? But but that said, that's like the extremely right-wing approach to it. Uh, imprison everyone, even though not all of them are criminals, but they might possibly be. I mean, that, that's really what he's saying. Imprison them because you don't think like me is basically what, what Superman's doing. And, and does that make it right? Does it make it wrong just because he wants to help them mold his image? It's, it's you know, I don't know if it is right or wrong in this situation, but clearly it's, it's not going to work. Well, I mean, it's like the old argument, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be a role model, so I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm not a role model. And as far as I'm concerned, it's done with when, you know, no, I'm sorry, but you, person X, in your position, you know, head of Exxon or point guard for the Phoenix Suns or, or whoever, it's like you are a role model, and there's there's no way around it. And I'm, I think I may be trying to make both sides of uh, the argument here. I don't think that there's necessarily any other good solutions that Superman could have undertaken there, um, which just kind of adds to the whole, you know, the whole tragic mess that the story uh, is seeming to uh, be heading, you know, headlong towards and rapidly getting out of control. I think the two things the scene does really well. First of all, it it, offer, it gives you a little bit more insight into the motivation of the new quote unquote heroes, like Stripes, like Six Six Six. You know, they some of them feel they had to become more extreme because they had a more extreme class of villain to deal with than, you know, the toy man or the prankster or whatever. Um, the second thing this really sh does really well, I think, the scene, it shows how naive Superman is 
about the situation. He actually yep. thinks that locking them up in a dome and telling them what is right and wrong is going to fix and change everything. And that's well, an incredibly like- naive worldview, and it comes from where he comes from, you know, the, the Midwestern, traditional 50s, 60s, you know, Judeo-Christian values of Smallville, Kansas. And I think, I agree with you, Bill, I really do see Wonder Woman as kind of guiding and steering Clark in a way. I mean, Clark is naive enough to think that all these kids are going to turn around, that they're all just going to, all it takes is, you know, a little bit of te- you know guidance from him and, you know, a little bit of teaching and a little bit of supervision, and all these kids are going to fall right in line behind him. And, I mean, he's na- naive enough to believe that. And Wonder Woman is, is, like she keeps saying, we're at war. We're amassing for a war. There's going to be a war. I mean, she's grown up in this elitist, egalitarian warrior, uh, you know, cast on an island isolated in the middle of nowhere. You know, I mean, it'd be hard for her not to see it in that, that kind of uh, context. I see your point about Macbeth. It is a good parallel, you know, I think, anyway. Bill, so why are we calling Clark naive when, in any other comic book, we would call Clark an optimist? Because, I well, mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is totally in character with Superman. I mean, like, well, but there's, why, Superman why, why, are we, why are we raking him over the coals? Superman has never been in a society like this, in a universe like this, in a situation like this. And I think part of the naivete has to do with... Um, I mean, it's kind of like uh, what uh, many or most of us uh, have kids, and you know, you have a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a seven-year-old or an eleven-year-old, and you tell them, you know, you know through from experience that you know this is the way you need to do it. But they're stubborn. They're kids. They are slightly resentful of authority. They want to prove themselves. They want to prove that their way is legitimate. Sometimes thereby unconsciously, you know, trying to, you know, earn the trust and respect of their elders, um, almost more than just flatly being disobedient or rebellious, but the effect is the same. And Superman has never had a simple interaction, you know, uh, has never had to deal with the frustration of trying to get through a six-year-old whose you know, jaw is clenched and mind is set on doing exactly what you asked them not to do. And so it just, I, I think that may play into it a little bit. I, I, you know, it's never necessarily addressed in this book, but, you know, that's, Superman has never been in a situation like that where he's dealing with someone who is unrepentant and almost innocent in their own way. I mean, these superheroes, these so-called superheroes, are doing it right as far as they know. This is what's worked for them. This is kind of how they've grown up. Uh, you know, they've been given the freedom to be heroes the way they want to do it, and you know, they think they're doing it right. And so it's just Superman. You know, again, I think it, it adds to the tragedy that I don't know that there's necessarily a better answer for Superman, you know, to try and pursue. I don't know if there's that there's a surefire way to change these people. I think, again, you know, we're heading headlong to the conclusion that you're not going to change these people, and the way he's dealing with them might or might not work here, and we'll find out before uh, Chapter 3 is over with. Plus, I mean, the hologram itself says it, you know, there is right and there is wrong, says the Superman hologram. And in Superman's mind, there's right and there's wrong. There, there are no gray areas. Uh, much like Rorschach, actually, in, in Watchmen, you know. Uh, in yeah. Superman's mind, he knows what's right and what's wrong, and there is nothing in between. I, I think another and, thing that has to do with is just the environment that's, that um, this world is set in. In the regular Superman title or other areas where we may have seen Superman, Adam, I agree with you. This is very much in character with Superman. However, in other settings, the world in general 
has a level of optimism and kind of believes in Superman or wants to believe in Superman where he's able to use that optimism and use that, that sense of right and wrong and actually able to do good and inspire other people. Here we have a world that, you know, in part because he's been out of touch with it for how many years, it's grown away from that, it's foreign to him, yet he's still keeping that same black and white, optimistic, you know, right and wrong attitude, and it just doesn't fly with the populace of this world. And he's been away from them so long, he doesn't see that or understand that, and he won't until it's too late, or he may not even. Well, all I'm saying is, if he started punching people, we'd say it would be awesome, but he locks them up and we think he's naive. I don't, I don't really agree with that. You know what I mean? Because, I mean... <laughs> it's not that know, he locks them up that makes them naive. It's that, that he thinks just by talking to them and telling them what's right and what's wrong, that that's going to rehabilitate exactly, them and change yeah. their whole worldview. That's that's what's naive, not by you know locking them up. I mean, I mean, obviously, if they're committing crimes, they need to be locked up. But the naivete comes into play where he thinks he's just going to be able to change them just by spouting some dogma at them, and they're all going to see the light. Oh, and of course, fall yes. Uh, how silly okay, it well, be. I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. I just want to give a shout out to my favorite cameo appearance up in the uh, the page where we first see the uh, Superman hologram with the repentance scene we talked about. Um, Riff Raff and I think Columbia from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's a, a nice little cameo to see them in there. Nice. Good catch. <laughs> oh, dear. That is him, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so Von Bach gets a little rowdy, and Captain Comet kind of calms him down in a very superhero way. And then we get a close-up on a woman with, it looks like one eye, and we get closer and closer, and then we see that somehow, through this woman's point of view, we're that Luthor and Captain Marvel are seeing what is going on inside the gulag and they realize that things are it's only a matter of time before things boil over there as well and uh norman recognizes captain marvel the next page we are introduced to the quintessence and uh that would uh, consist of and help me if i get this wrong uh high father yep. from the new gods ganthet the guardian the wizard shazam the phantom stranger and oh i can't this one more is out of frame. I really can't see who that last one is. Yeah, exactly. I can't either. But these are the um, the five uber beings, the galactic lords and immortals, as uh, as Spectre uh, refers to them, the, or who are the quintessence of all power cosmic. I'm is that sorry. Zeus or somebody like that? Oh, it could be from uh, Diana's mythology, maybe. Yeah, that I don't know. Sense. Just trying to help yeah. fill in the gap. No, that's a good. That's a that's a good surmise. Um, they're standing and debating the uh, the fate of the world, literally, um, standing around trying to figure out whether they should interfere. The wizard Shazam is obviously crushed and heartbroken as as to where, uh, can, you know, please, I could love him no more than my own son, and he is lost. We must help. We must help them all. And Ganthet's like, no more Shazam. Over the millennia, we have often lent our guidance and wisdom to the Earthlings, and look what has happened, you know? Nope. <laughs> and they, uh, they debate and argue whether they should become involved in the conflict that's brewing on Earth. Is Spectre part of this group? Because it looks like he's, a, he's addressing them in that like, middle panel there that, that, t- that goes uh, top to bottom of the page. You know, how interesting that you, insist, that, that you insist upon all this, that you are all so concerned with how unconcerned. It's like, is he speaking to them directly or just kind of speaking to the air but not meant for them to hear? I really couldn't tell if they're if he's part of the conversation directly. I don't think he's part of the quintessence per se, because I think there are five of them. Hence, you know, quint, right. well, yes. quintessence. But I think he might be speaking to them, but I don't know if they actually hear him. That's what I mean. Yeah, is it more at least speaking to the air for Norman's benefit? Because like Norman's like I I shouldn't be hearing this, and he turns away only to encounter our our friend Boston that we met at the bar earlier. 
Right. I think it makes some sense that the Spectre, um, you know, is certainly a cosmic enough character to be recognized and communicate with these beings, and it it um, it gives you an out time wise if the Spectre is uh, is actually dealing with the contestants. It it makes it more logical that Norman Osborn has the time to have this little aside with uh, Dead Man coming up, which is a great scene. Such a such Norman a Osborn. unexpected. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Norm McCabe. Well, yeah. <laughs> dark Rain <laughs> too. I know. Got got Dark Rain. Dark Rain on my brain, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I like I like Kingdom Come better so far. <laughs> I just I like the fact that um, I have never read a Phantom Stranger appearance that is not hilarious, except for this one, because every time you read Phantom Stranger, uh, like inevitably someone will be talking off panel, and everybody's like. Who's that? And then the next page or the next panel will reveal it's the Phantom Stranger. And it'll be like, and remember, kids, don't ever take candy, dot, dot, dot. And then the next page will be from a stranger. And then, like, it'll introduce him or, like, <laughs> it'll be like, and remember, never turn your back, dot, 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 on a stranger. And then, like, <laughs> that's just how he introduces himself, which is hilarious. And uh, I just... I, I remember cracking up when I read that in um, Solomon Grundy, the new Scott Collins mini that's out right now. I cracked up when I read Phantom Stranger and uh, JLA Avengers. Like, it never gets old. And I actually read it out loud to myself whenever he appears <laughs> because it just feels like there should be, like, just, you know, after every time he reads that. But, like, for as ridiculously and sickly powerful as he is, be it Shadow Pact or whatever, he never does anything. He never, he just never lifts a finger, and I love that. He's just, you know, he's just in it for the cameos. He's like uh, Mr. Roper on Three's <laughs> Company. He just, he just pops in and then he's out, you know? He's kind of like the DC version of The Watcher, if you think about it. Because he pops up where, you know, yeah. where, you know, heavy, heavy crap's going down, you know. More I was going to say crap. that he's I was going to say the DC version of Al Sharpton with all those giant gold chains he's got on, but I'll go with that. The DC version of Lenny and Squiggy. As uh, Laverne says, can anything be more horrible or or more repulsive? And they bust through the door with a big hello. (laughs) In the uh, the DC uh, stories, or the DC Universe stories of Alan Moore, he writes a really good origin story for the Phantom Stranger. And I think he does it in there too, but the story itself is really cool if you haven't read it. We see Norman uh, talking to Boston Brand, and he's shocked because Boston can see him. And he's the first person they've run into who can see him, who can sense him. They talk about how uh, the you know the void is his realm. He's kind of bopping around trying to find his way to the afterlife. I really like this version of the dead man. Yeah, Boston's looking pretty gruesome. I mean, when I was a kid... I mean, reading, you know, reading the, the huge hundred-page, you know, Justice League of America's back in the early 70s where they had the backstories of him and Sandman and all those, you know, ancillary characters. And uh, he always weirded me out, but uh, at least he had skin back then. And uh, now he's just a rattly old skeleton, and uh, it's off-putting even to uh, my uh, 40-some-odd years old self. So, yeah, I give, uh, give Alex uh, uh wonder who Alex got to uh, stand in for those pictures. Uh, Laura Flynn Boyle, maybe? Trying to figure out who he used to Calista Flockhart. Elton. Yeah, can I have a rim shot? Or maybe not. But I'm pumped. There you go. <laughs> but Norman asks so, yeah. uh, Boston about some in- information about uh, the Spectre. He's like, "Oh, is it? You know, is he really an angel?" And he says, "Yes, an angel of death." Dun, dun, and then he dun. explains to him 
bum bum bum. There should have been a little bum 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 there on the panel, I think. But then he explains to him that the Spectre at one point was human, but uh, he's been doing this kind of thing for so long that he's kind of lost his perspective. And uh, he says that Norman's uh, when Norman makes it to the other side to look him up. He's got a friend on the afterlife, you know, much like you know you have a friend in Pennsylvania. Hmm. You have a friend. Can you have you a friend in purgatory. <laughs> Yeah, he's basically telling us that uh, the Spectre has become uh, Dr. Manhattan, isn't he? It always comes back to Watchmen, doesn't it? <laughs> it should, anyway. I just, I love the line. Um, and, I, you know, even reading, uh, you know, Old Just Society comics way back, you know, they put out reprints and stuff when I was a kid. Uh, so I got to read some of the old Silver Age stuff, I think. And, um, yeah, the Spectre was certainly a much more grounded, uh, just more a superhero type. And I love the line here, Dead Man, don't get me wrong, he used to be a normal Joe, a cop's I recall, but the moment he got tapped by the big G to be an avenging spirit, he started to lose touch with his human side. You know, a long time ago, he was a superhero himself, and since then, he's gotten weirder and weirder. And now, to tell you the truth, you can't be sure what side he'll take, you know, any of this. Um, I just, I think that's a really, really cool line. And, uh, you know, it's, again, good writing. It, it takes... Uh, you know, not very long to pass along, you know, a whole book's worth of, uh, of revelations about him. That's just, you know, uh, newsflash, Mark Wade is pretty good. <laughs> Plus it explains, it totally uh, fills in a good plot hole, too, because it explains why the Spectre needs Norman to, to bear witness and why he needs Norman to make the judgment, because he is so out of touch with what he used to be, you know, a human, that uh, he can't do it himself. And are, are there any parallels drawn between the fact that the two main uh, uh, protagonists in the story, the Spectre and the Superman, are both uh, almost hopelessly out of touch. I mean, is there a is there a, an obvious conclusion that we need to be drawing off of this, or is it just uh, another piece of the puzzle? That's a good point. I really, I really hadn't thought about it, but you're right. I mean, Superman is pretty much out of like the world has passed him by. Yeah, and and the Spectre, um, you know, his thought processes are fuzzy. You know, he's been so long without a host. You know, they established back in issue one that, you know, he doesn't really think quite right these days. You know, and even he knows it. I guess maybe that's the difference. I mean, we, we don't know necessarily that Superman has any, you know, has any great self-doubts uh, like the Spectre seems to have. Like like the Spectre, both of them, you know, if they've got any self-doubts, they're just pushing through it. And it's kind of standard operating procedure, you know, business as usual for, you know, the two of them, you know, as far as their their involvement or reintegration into, uh, you know, the universes or societies they are trying to protect. Okay, and then the next uh, double-page spread shows um, Clark and Diana sitting on the outside of the uh, the, the Green Lantern-generated watchtower, uh, kind of just, you know, shooting the breeze and talking. Uh, first, he tells an anecdote about what happened to Brainiac, and then uh, Clark confronts Diana on why she had been put into exile by her own people, which this is a newsflash to everyone reading. I mean, it... it Definitely pulls another piece of the puzzle, too, as to why Diana wouldn't have just gone back to Themyscira, you know, to wait this out or whatever, uh, or gone back to her people. She pretty much had been uh, put on trial, stripped of her royalty and her heritage, and sent into exile uh, because she had failed her mission as an ambassador to the the outside world. Uh, She was supposed to spread a message of peace and order. But instead, uh, as you can see, peace and order have not exactly reigned since Diana's emergence into the world, into man's world. Yeah, it really makes you wish you could have uh, some of her extended story. It'd, it'd be, I said, I, I'm still a proponent of, uh, and, you know, they'll never do that to this extent, but, you know, give us, you know, I've been thinking, you know, give us stories from these 52 universes and enrich our DC experience by, uh, 
you know, giving us comic books. And they would never do Wonder Woman, you know, Earth 22 prequel uh, series or anything. But I just think it'd be fascinating to know, you know, exactly how it went in Clark's absence. You know, she obviously thought that the the, the world almost was on her shoulders, and and uh, you think that she may have put, you know, too much on herself. Certainly, uh, certainly in, in view of her own expectations of herself, she. She doesn't come out and say it, but she truly believes that, at least to this point, you know, she's failed, which is why she's, you know, trying to, uh, now that Superman is willing to come back, um, that's why she's, uh, that's why she's dragging him in. It's interesting, too, that her conclusion is that she failed, not because, uh, she failed because she was too often offering peace. She has this one line on on the next page. Too often I offered an olive branch and not a cestus. A cestus is a weighted boxing glove used for hand-to-hand combat. And it really speaks to where her perspective is now, as far as you know. She wasn't. She feels like she was. She was too soft. She was too reliant on on peace and peaceful ways. And she says later, "You said it yourself once." And she stops and calls him Cal. We are warriors. We have an obligation to to engage in combat. And then he says, "No, we have a greater obligation to keep the peace, and only the weak succumb to brutality." And he's holding on to her uh, magic lasso as he says this. So you know he believes it to be the truth. I think one of the, the great uh, quotes of our modern age is, uh, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. I, uh, I think Isaac Asimov wrote that, that uh, even though it's fiction, I think it still stands. Uh, on the next page, we see a, uh, a shot of Billy Batson, it seems, uh, getting, um, just, getting just annihilated by uh, a beam by one of these um, you know, new quote-unquote heroes. And as we pan away, we realize that it's just an image that's being shown to Captain Marvel to try to keep, buy uh, Luthor to keep him in line. Um, the more we get into this, especially the third chapter, there does seem to be uh, a certain amount of uh, derivation going on. You do seem to see callbacks to, uh, well, I guess not secret invasion that hadn't happened yet, but uh, there's definitely some uh, clockwork orange going on here. As you can see that, uh, that Billy Batson is completely consumed by this imagery that he's seeing, and, and, you know, it's obviously certainly doing exactly what it's supposed to do, instilling the proper mix of horror to soften him up and make him uh, susceptible to the earworms, I guess. Yuck. The Ludovico <laughs> treatment, as it yeah. were. The DCU uh, version of the Ludovico treatment. He, uh, Lu- yeah. Luthor's hey, using this dispens- Yeah, right? He made yeah. us do horrible things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, I never forget the face. Okay, you weren't in that episode, but I never forget the face. <laughs> he was on the ship. He was off camera. Yeah, I think I'll have a little bit to buy that. <laughs> I will suspend belief for uh, the old series, but uh, it's all good. <laughs> it's, it's still one of the yeah, best one man. word. One word. It's still one of the one of the best one word lines in any movie, though. Come. <laughs> yeah. And luckily, I don't think James Kirk ever had to deal with uh, nightmarish imagery like uh, Billy Batson's having to go through, though. Because, man, that robot monster creature thing with the bullet head and the one eye and the, just, ugh, you know, I, I can see why they're running from him. And, um, you know, it's, it's really amazing that, uh, that there's just no doubt whatsoever that that's him. I mean, uh, you know, Alex Ross is... Uh, has de-aged the face of the older Billy Batson perfectly, and just did, you know, certainly leaves no doubt. Obviously, the show would give it away, but it's pretty clear what's going on there. And, um, you know, it's just, 
talk about Alex Ross finding a way to absolutely put you right in the heart of Billy Batson's, you know, personal terror. You know, again, uh, good writing, good art, you know, uh, making things that might need a great deal of explanation, fairly succinct portions of the story. Well, you know, with the giant robot, that would be, um, the, the robot would be Mr. Atom, A-T-O-M. You know, and okay. uh, we're looking at all kinds of characters. I mean, Black Adam's in there. In the, in the panels and stuff. I mean, this is the roll call of the Monster Society of Evil from Fawcett Comics circa 19, I'm going to say, 43, 44, I think. Really? And so this is Captain Marvel's uh, baddie lineup. And, you know, while Hoppy uh, isn't, uh, you know, in full figure, I mean, he is Mary Marvel's uh, stuffed animal down there. So while Freddy's getting it, you know, some of the current characters, like it seems he keeps coming up, Von Bach, among others, um, you know, they're the ones that are taking on, you know, Archibald. They're the ones that are taking on Bonzo. They're they're taking on the Crocodile Men and, you know, Dr. P.U. and, and everybody else who's on there, Evil Eye. This is, excuse me, this is kind of like the Marvel Family three-panel roll call that we were talking about earlier from the comments. Um, it's not located to only three panels, but, I mean, it does, you know, short of uh, a, an appearance by Dr. Savannah referenced on the next page, only not in picture, Rothschild's a wicked Dr. Savannah, uh, I might add. Doug Braithwaite, too, for that matter. Um, this, this is, you know, this is the, uh, like we said uh, last episode, this is the triptych for uh, Fawcett Comics here in, in Fawcett City. Plus the, uh, the headline says Monster Society in the second panel. And we also see the bulleteer fighting the, the, the bad guys, and he was also a Fawcett character, I believe. And what's up with the, uh, the little uh, squirrel and the, uh, Captain, uh, the Captain Marvel shirt? Laying there behind Billy Bats' elbow, right just above the Monster Society, uh, a copy of the newspaper. What, little bunny? Is that supposed to mean it's Hoppy, Hoppy the Marvel Bunny. Hoppy the Marvel Bunny, okay. I swear, it's, I didn't make that up. It's true. It's Hoppy okay. the Marvel Bunny. I, I trust you. <laughs> I have no idea myself. It's no dumber I than mean, Streaky the Supercat, you know? <laughs> hey, That's back on a Streaky. <laughs> Streaky made an outstanding appearance in uh, Supergirl Adventures in the eighth grade. Nice. <laughs> Fair enough. We see Luthor using these um, these images on Billy though to cement his negative feelings about superhumans, even though you know, ironically enough, he is one. And as we see him with the worms to the ear, the worms come in, the worms crawl out, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. And Billy tries really, really hard to say his word. Now, now the only thing I know about Savannah and things like that is is from Fifty Two. I was not a Marvel uh, Captain Marvel reader. It, it, are those Mister Mind Worms? Yeah, they've been more or less duplicated because, like, as you saw in Fifty Two, Savannah and Mister Mind have a love hate relationship. But Mister Mind was more or less the ringleader, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, of the Monster Society. And then, likewise, that goes uh, the same for Savannah, too. So they kind of oscillate back and forth between the two of them as far as the leadership, as far as the villains in Fawcett. But contemporary-wise, you're looking at, you know, you know, Mr. Mind is, he's not like, I don't want to call him a MacGuffin, but he's definitely like the deus ex machina in some cases for some stories that have happened. This is, uh, this like the is an of the exact multiverse. duplicate. Yep. This is, uh, well, this is an exact duplicate of what happened to Booster Gold's father in Dan Jurgens and Norm Rapton's current run. Right. Uh, you read my mind. I was Jeff just going to say that. Yeah, that, that Jeff Johns wrapped up. So, 
Um, I mean, and the 411 on Mr. Mind is, you know, he's this crazy, you know, intergalactic worm, and uh, he is sentient, and he has a little voice box so he can talk. <laughs> and back in, and back oh in the God. day, he used to wear little little glasses too. The original uh, Mister Mind had those little pince nez glasses that that clip on your nose. So yeah, it's pretty goofy back in nice. the day. Uh, but although, they, like you said, they repurposed him for fifty two, and then he just recently popped up in Booster Gold again. Yeah, they stepped on him too. But yeah. uh, you know, interestingly, um, he looks just like Doctor Savannah. They looked alike. Uh, they, I think. Originally, back in the 40s, he was supposed to look Asian. So, and they used to picture uh, the stereotypical Asian in the 40s during the war as, as always wearing glasses and having um, thin, you know, slit eyes. And that's the way they drew Mr. Mind back in the day. The interesting thing on this page, though, in this sequence for me, is at the very last uh, panel, we see one of the bat drones, as it were, the bat robots, watching everything going down. So now we know that Bruce knows what is going on? Yeah, the, the, the secret is spilled um, at the very top of the next page as you turn the page, but it's uh, nice to have that little aha moment where you, you think, oh, thank God, you know, Batman isn't actually throwing in a Luther. I mean, he realizes, you know, that Luther's a snake and that he's going to have to right. run his own gambit. Yeah, and you can see in, like, in that thank page. You. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> saying you see in that page uh, Bruce's watch, it's glowing red, the same same color as those eyes, you know, indicating he's he's looking at that scene right now as Luther's coming in to see him. Yeah. And it looks like they're building a variety of robots, including more of Superman's, uh, Batman's bat robots that he's been using to protect Gotham. And it looks like Luther's building them for him now. Yeah, I just love the classic design on these things, too. You know, again, thank you, Alex Ross, for knocking it out of the park. I just love that, that kind of, the, that almost, what, 40s retro look? Or that would be 50s. They look almost uh, like the original Batmobile that the faces do on the front of that original Batmobile. Yeah, I, I, that money is that motif is uh, on purpose there. The important thing uh, is it's really interesting to watch Bruce walk this fine line. He's trying to keep Luthor from becoming suspicious and to really you know have Luthor think that he's he's thrown in with him, you know. On the next uh, page, he kind of cements this, you know, supporting the world of this, ridding the world of the League is a necessary evil. Mankind was never meant to bow before a Kryptonian and his ilk. My thoughts exactly, says Luthor. So he's playing, while he's, you know, the whole thing about keep your enemies closer than your friends, trying to play Luthor a little bit to let Luthor think that he's actually on his side a little bit longer until he can pull out his secret weapon and find out what the heck is actually going on, which we'll see in subsequent pages. Okay, and I haven't yeah, heard anybody use the word toadies since uh, A Christmas Story. Once Superman and his toadies are out of the way... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a very, very Luther adjective there, isn't it? Very, very Lutherian. I, I really like the, uh, the duality um, or the uh, parallel uh, in the tree. I guess that made up word. Um, that you know, Batman and Luther really do have you know the same conclusion in mind. It's just Batman absolutely does not trust whatever Luther's path is going to be. You know, I, I think Batman truly does believe the world that. You know, he, the Superman was never meant to have a, a world, uh, you know, bowing before him. I mean, obviously, the world doesn't bow before Superman, but the point remains that uh, humanity should be in charge of itself, barring barring an attack from extraterrestrials or time travelers or something. You know, the humans really need to figure this out on their own. Of course, if it weren't for the superheroes, you know, there would have been uh, no life on Earth for uh, at least a few generations now. So, 
easier said than done. Yeah, I think it's a classic case of uh, be careful what you wish for because uh, don't you know that as soon as you've committed Superman and Wonder Woman, you know, to go away and you know, you've blown up Captain Adam and you've burned up, you know, the Martian Manhunter and, you know, all the, the, the cosmically powerful characters, you know, say you do get them to leave. Well, what happens, you know, next time Starro shows up? <laughs> you know, it's like the entire plan is enslaved, you know, okay, okay, you got six billion, uh, you know, six billion little Starro juniors running around now or uh, somebody show up, you know, Dark Side show up, you know, it's okay, it's time to blow up the Earth. Well, Okay, there's no Ryan, there's no Superman, there's no, uh, you know, Martian Manhunter or, you know, even Firestorm or something, no Green Lantern. So, uh, all right, go ahead. I guess, I don't know, I guess Green Lantern might still be around because he is a human character, though he does have the power of the gods. What, uh, where is, where is their, what side of the fence are they on with, uh, characters like Green Lantern who are, you know, obviously human, but, um, you know, powerful enough to change futures and stop suns from shining and you know, stuff like that. I mean, do, do we, we don't know to this point uh, what their attitudes are towards uh, characters like that. They're mainly interested in, um, you know, letting humans guide themselves, aren't they? That's that's kind of the, the, the one thing that puts Batman and Luthor on the same side of the chessboard is that they're both, at their core, they're both just humans. And it'd be easy, I think it'd be I think Luthor wants to believe that Bruce would have the same fears that he would, that, you know, these people who are more than human, even though, you know, some of them started out as human, uh, would be, you know, the inheritors of the power of the earth. And yeah. we're coming up on well, one of my you, favorite. Do we think that um, the aim of Luthor and or uh, Wayne are to eliminate superheroes basically from the earth and leave it with a bunch of Batmans and Green Arrows um, who get by on their wits and no superpowers, or... Is it mainly their aim to get rid of the aliens, get rid of the Wonder Woman's, the Superman's, the Martian Manhunters, and and this and that? I mean, is is it okay to have Captain Adam and Green Lantern and extremely powerful humans rolling around, while you know a character like Hawkman? I mean, he's super strong, but he's you know not going to go in and change the the course of history. Um, you know, he's not going to make the Earth spin backwards. You know, to save Lois Lane or anything. So. Do you need to leave just because you're an alien? You know, you know, are you welcome just because you're a human? Are these are these these issues that uh, that get addressed uh, uh, before this uh, miniseries is over here? Yeah, I think uh, in, the, in the final analysis, yes. I uh, the next the next page is really cool. We see uh, see Bruce and Ollie at the table with all of their allies behind them, and then Luthor with his allies, and we get one of my favorite lines in the whole miniseries where um, this, uh, his son. Is is facing Bruce and saying, "Are they and they're prepared to fight tooth and nail with the generation that sired them?" And he looks his son in the eye and says, "Aren't all young people, son?" <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, it's just funny that he would have no contact with his son except over a boardroom table helping Luthor. Yeah. Now does Bruce know that he's his son, or is he a saying son in the same way an older person would you know use that use it as a term towards a younger person, or is he actually addressing him oh. addressing him as his son? If you didn't have the annotations, you could take it that way. But now that we have the apocrypha, meaning uh, hidden things, we know that he's... Well, I mean, he's the one who brokered the deal. If you remember from last issue, he's the one that brought Bruce in. So, yeah, I think he is addressing him as his literal son. Okay. Plus, yeah, he's the I world's greatest detective. I think he'd be able to figure it out. Well, yeah. Look exactly Indeed. alike. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay, and on the next page, we see um, Bruce's secret weapon, the being... The, the man, John Jones, who used to be the Martian, uh, Martian Manhunter. Uh, unfortunately, John, in his quest to learn more and more about the human condition, 
uh, opened his mind up to the entire human race at once, and it fried him. It fried him bad to the point where, I mean, we see the one scene where he tries to reach for a cup of coffee and he accidentally phases through it, and Bruce has to pick it up for him. He has, like, no control over his, his intangibility powers. He is, he's unable to use his telepathy powers only in the very smallest bits. And at the very end, um, Bruce, uh, you know, although he tries to use John to find out what he wants to find out, feel, almost feel, it seems like he feels regret for having brought him in at all. It's like, you've done your best, old friend. Go home and rest. Dream of red sands and blue stars. I love the style, though, the way that, that Alex Ross chose to um, reveal John to us, you know, through the specter, like, like basically lifting the veil and exposing, the, you know, the Martian beneath. It's just that, that, that artwork, that, that way he did that. It's just, it's just beautiful to me. Yeah, especially because you just you have no idea who this, you know, the sad sack uh, character is, I guess. I guess when he, you know, puts his hand through the coffee, uh, um, you can kind of pick it up. But uh, I like the fact that, uh, that they don't just spell out who the character is, uh, at least not for five panels, I guess. Yeah. But it's well done, because he sure as heck doesn't seem like the Martian Manhunter. Yeah, if that one panel hadn't been there, you probably would, it, until he calls him John with the apostrophe O-N-N, you mm-hmm. probably would have had no idea. Then the next page, we see Captain Marvel trying to make friends uh, with some of the uh, people that, uh, that Bruce has brought. He has to see Black Canary's uh, crossbow. And he's just a very intimidating presence among all of them because they know. They know who he is, what he's capable of, what level of power he's at. And uh, it says here, the the caption box, no doubt the intimidation of his mere presence is uncanny. Clearly, these heroes regard him with a growing unease accorded only one other, which I'm taking to mean Superman. Because there's no one else on that level of power, really, other than Superman and Captain Marvel. The perma smile of his is so well done. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's really off-putting. I mean, it, he, he uh, you know he's not evil, but boy, he sure seems like it. And you can understand why uh, the other heroes, uh, or the other beings, uh, tiptoe around him. I know I would. And how about Bruce's son working over uh, trying to get, a, get with Dick's uh, daughter? <laughs> I hope they know. Well, they aren't blood relations. I mean, it's, okay, you know, yeah. it's legal. And then on our, our next page, we see Superman looking down at the Earth from the watchtower, going country by country, making sure everything is clear and fine. And then I, I really like the third panel here because you get a little um, reunion of the Teen Titans uh, all in this one panel. You have Robin, Wonder Girl, uh, Red Arrow, who was Speedy, the Flash, who we you know we discussed earlier, is, is Wally, and the new Aquaman, who was Aqualad. So you know, so it was a little Teen we, Titans I'm, reunion. I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember. Did we decide that that was uh, Wally, or are we still wondering if maybe he was some kind of amalgamated character? Yeah, I think it's an amalgam, but still, I mean, I think that's kind of the intention of the panel, though. I mean, they wouldn't put these characters in this panel. Um, Absolutely, you know, I, I on agree. Accident. Yeah. Yeah. I've never really, I've never really noticed it the way you just described it, and and I like uh, what you did, and it, it makes me wonder, you know, should this be uh, inferred as uh, settling the argument? I guess it could. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back through the apocrypha and see if there's anything um, specific listed about it. All right, maybe uh, that could be your homework before uh, issue four uh, is released. <laughs> right, it'll be on the test. <laughs> all right, <laughs> sounds good. Norman is staying there observing, and then all of a sudden the flash sees him and pulls him out of, you know, whatever nether space he was in. Power Girl grabs him and is about to rip his head off. Superman stops her and asks for an explanation. 
I and this is when love. Norman tries to explain what's going on, which, I mean, really hasn't been too well explained to him, you know? <laughs> I just, I love the sequence, though. I mean, this is maybe my, my favorite uh, sequence of the uh, the third uh, third issue. Um, I just, you know, it's so unexpected. And, you know, it's just, it's such a, a great use, you know, of, of the character Flash to actually be able to, see between, you know, beyond the, the, the boundaries of dimensions. <laughs> and it um, makes you wonder why he didn't uh, grab the Spectre. Did he only see Norman, possibly? Actually, I'm looking there. Spectre's not there with him. If you look around, yeah, so this, he, he's basically not there. It's just Norman in there. They just uh, kind of do the classic uh, comedy thing where the, uh, the, the, the two guys are getting in trouble. Uh, the, the one dude that's uh, paying attention kind of uh, tiptoes back around the shed, leaving the, uh, the other poor dumb sucker to, uh, to take everything. That's, that's about <laughs> it. Okay. Like <laughs> he tiptoe away and says, uh, good luck, McKay. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> I'm going to get a sandwich. I'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to visit the afterworld bathroom. I'll uh, be right back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's it's kind of fitting that the Flash is the one who sees him, though, because the Flash was the first DC character to travel to an alternate uh, Earth, you know, to travel between dimensions or whatever. So it's kind of fitting that he would be the one to pull Norman McKay out of this like limbo into the you know this physical world for them them to see that he is there, you know, to bear witness. And he, he starts to explain, my name is Norman McKay, I'm supposed to, well, this isn't going to make any sense. And he's try, he tries to warn them that there's a catastrophe on the way, that Armageddon is coming, and of the visions that he's been having all along in the story. And he quotes Revelation to Superman. And Superman is like, huh, oh, please, there's no Armageddon coming. Everything's just fine. And then on the right-hand of the panel, Red Robin, holy God! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> reminds me of uh, Grandpa Simpson from the movie, uh, when he's just kind of like stammering like all these crazy riddles, like <laughs> about like you know <laughs> this crazy old man going going off. Well, evidently, evidently, uh, uh, Dick Grayson has seen that the solid feces has hit the rotary oscillator <laughs> down in the gulag, as uh, the prisoners are have gone berserk, as he put it. And they start to mobilize their people, get it together to to try to, to you know to quell the tide of, of rebellion that's that's going through the um, you know the gulag. And the specter comes to take Norman back. He says, "You are finished here." He goes, "No, we're not quite." And then we uh, we see um, you know Diana, and Superman going off on each other, arguing about the situation. Okay, so oh, okay, so but here is basically specter touches and pulls him back into the uh, the veil, if you will, and. Uh so they see Superman and Wonder Woman discussing, like, where'd he go? I don't know. <laughs> but why'd you, why'd you stab me in the back? Right. She's, she called out the orders as yeah. to who would do what with the gulag. And I mean, when Superman is obviously supposedly the, you know, the leader of the group. Yes, which is very late and, in the death And as, I just, I, what, something I don't understand about this part of the book is if all this stuff is going on in the gulag and things are just going to hell in the gulag, why do they stop to go talk to the people? At, you know the uh, the the United uh, Nations or whatever. I mean, wouldn't they go right to the danger to try to quell the tide or whatever? Yeah, that's a great point. I yeah. I would kind of think so. I mean, I, I kind of understand what they're thinking, but can we assume that uh, Superman and Wonder Woman have sent uh, most of the troops off to uh, the Gulag to start dealing with it while they kind of uh, run by the UN real fast on their way there? I mean, because they're 
they're not really asking permission. They're just kind of telling them, hey, look, by the way, uh, it's kind of going down in Kansas, and uh, we're going to have a fight on our hands. So uh, not really giving the option of telling us not to do this. Um, it's just uh, getting ready to happen. So just wanted to give you all a heads up. And the people retort, you know, we're not going to let another tragedy like Kansas happen again. Superman's like, what does that mean? He goes, well, that means we have to decide uh, some things for ourselves. Good day. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. I forget what's in there. I think it's also from The Simpsons, you know. I said good day. <laughs> yeah. You know? The ominous, the ominous uh, line on this page is in the very last panel. The league will be forced to take final decisive action. Yeah. You can hear the, uh, you hear the music in the background going, like, dun, dun, dun. Right. Exactly yeah, my thoughts uh, on that. Yes, taking a, taking a turn for the worse here. Uh, unless you talk to uh, Luther, who uh, seems to think this is great news. Uh, okay, he's a, he he calls it good news, which I guess is uh, what he would do. Um, he is Luther. He's a bad guy, and uh, he likes it when things don't go right for the good guys. And then we see Darkstar ask uh, Bruce, may we assume you've given the signal? Absolutely. And he reaches into his coat. Strike. And all the people in... Uh, Batman's uh, side of the table subdue all of the people on Luthor's side of the table, except for Luthor himself, who gets chased down by the Blue Beetle, and the Blue Beetle activates the Bat Robots and corner corner him. And we see uh, Billy Batson also cornered. Now for the first time in the story that it's not Captain Marvel we've been seeing this whole time. It's grown-up Billy Batson. And then one day he just decided to shut that away, and then Luthor... Um, prevailed upon that and exploited that that scared little boy to keep you know his own ace in the hole as it were you know in this uh you know, superhero game a superhero war that's uh impending yeah i think it's interesting that we have yet another uh you know callback uh, to another popular movie is uh does luther uh seem to meet his end uh aliens style here he's uh, kind of getting the paul riser treatment isn't he uh, Paul Reiser sneaks out of the, uh, the control room uh, as the uh, the aliens start to uh, bust through the ceiling, and um, he thinks he's uh, making a, a quick escape, only to find out that no, he's just going to his own private little dance. Bruce tries to talk uh, Billy down. He tries to explain to him, "Oh, I know what's happened now. This is my yeah." And he chases him, and he's like, "Billy, look out!" And then he runs into a holding tank full of those little Mister Mindworms, the same Mindworms that Luthor has been using to keep him under control and docile this whole time. And he freaks, he loses it, and he says his magic word and flies off. So do you think the uh, the worms have somehow given him the impetus to uh, finally use the magic word, uh, no pun intended, or do you think that this is just such a monumental psychic freak out on his part that it just dislodges uh, the, the locks put on his brain? Um, or do you think that this is uh, Luther's plan all along, uh, I mean, not this exact scenario, but that at this point that he would be able to say the magic word, um, you know, when it was time. Um, I just, I, I never really kind of reconciled that in my own mind, uh, you know, what, uh, what was going through Billy's head or, and or Luther's head uh, as this is playing out and he's uh, getting ready to call down the magic lightning. Well, I think that, you know, he's been using these worms to, to you know, to basically psychically torture Billy this whole time to keep him docile and to keep him from becoming Captain Marvel and to keep him, you know, his under thrall that, you know, for him to be covered with the, the same thing that has been used to psychically torture him this whole time. Plus all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, I just a combination of all the things that you said, that'd be my guess anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, it's literally his, 
his his revulsion has literally reached a boiling point, and it just you know it has overridden any kind of uh, barriers, personality barriers, or whatever. I mean, so do we think that did Luther? I mean, I don't know. If you say he miscalculated here, um, uh, but uh, you know, was this was this part of Luther's plan? This is going to happen, or is this in fact uh, not part of Luther's plan? So I think that uh, the, the answer to that uh, is interesting and. Uh, um, certainly uh, uh, gives the story a, a slightly different uh, a shade. Yeah, I, think, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I, I think Luthor eventually wanted to use him as his own Superman, his own super-powered pawn, you know. Um, but, you know, as things work out, I think Luthor's own, you know, lust for power blinded him to the fact that Batman wouldn't possibly actually be on his side, you know. And we see that, you know, Billy calls down the lightning and flies away. Batman says, well, now that I figure out the wild card, you know, he's still under Luther's straw. I got to get back to the cave. I have to, you know, I have to strategize. I have to figure out what's going on next, what our next move is now. Yeah, and a heck of a scene change coming up here. They, uh, uh, one thing Wade does so well, um, again, I hate to gush on him, but uh, the way he, he really has you uh, uh, ride the roller coaster here. You know, big action, you know, set pieces followed by, you know, very quiet moments of uh, character development um, uh, that lead right back into more action. But, uh, I, you know, again, this scene, uh, very compelling here, as uh, you see her, you know, with the, the armor on, you know, putting her uh, putting her, her fighting wings on um, for the first time I've ever seen them. Um, I, I don't know that uh, I'm, not a, a, I'm not a huge uh, Wonder Woman expert, um, though I've, you know, been reading about her character for, you know, 35 some odd years now um but i don't know if the are the uh is the armor and the wings is that earth 22 invention or is that uh, something that i've just never uh, noticed uh, run across uh, previously i've never really seen that armor set up before i've seen her in different amazonian armor but not this particular uh with the wings and and the uh, you know the golden uh and the, and the short and the sword and, uh, that you know is forged by the gods that can even cut superman or whatnot. I think just like Superman's uh, costuming in this in this story arc, it's just nothing more than uh, um, a futuristic take on what it could look like if it develops. Or you know, it's just it's just a futuristic version of, of armor she's already worn. Yeah. Okay. Well, here we see just how far Wonder Woman is willing to go. Here we see the de- the, the definition and, and the real delineation of the difference between Superman and Wonder Woman. Superman obviously thinks that this situation can be fixed. He thinks that these kids you know these this younger generation of quote-unquote heroes that won't fall in line behind him can be rehabilitated wonder woman on the other hand is uh as they say loaded for bear she's pulled out her uh, you know her sword that can cut through anything she's putting on her mystic armor and she's going down to kick butt and chew bubblegum and she's all out of bubblegum this is the moment where we talked earlier about the uh, Superman's naivete uh, or optimism, depending on how you look at it. This is where that's really being challenged, and it, it kind of comes to a head you know, over these next three pages. But when we get to it, the moment where Wonder Woman re- realized, Diana realizes that Clark doesn't get it. The look in her face is, is just priceless, and she just walks away, kisses him and walks away, and we'll get to that as we go through it. But this whole process is just, uh, it's really breaking down, I think, Clark's, Visions of how the world should be, or challenging his challenging his views that that he's been holding for so long that uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is the way to go, but it's uh, he he won't let go of it. He insists that this is the right way, and maybe that's good. That's what Superman needs to be. He needs to be uh, you know the champion for good, no matter what the what the uh, the obstacle. I think it's a great point. I mean, uh, 
whether we want to debate uh, and be right about the fact that uh, his methods or his, his thought process itself is naive, your your point that uh, this world needs arbiter of human, you know, again more more odd juxtapositions, you know, pop juxtapositions, or Superman is the one who's arguing for the the humanity of the solution here. You know, he's arguing for a non-lethal solution. You know, pretty much no matter what the cost. You know, insisting that there are lines we do not cross, we have rules. And, you know, that is exactly what we must have from Superman. So, again, you know, it just is Mark Wade, you know, hitting just the right notes. You know, this whole sequence between him and Wonder Woman is just is just epic. I mean, you want to talk about the ramp-up to just an incredible conclusion of the story. You just get the feeling that this story is going to pay off pretty well um, after this scene's over. <laughs> you know, there's going to be there's going to be no limping out after this. I mean, uh, you just you know by this point, I think we've learned to uh, to, to trust that uh, Mark Wade has something really big in store for us, and and just you know the the fact that you've always sensed those undercurrents between you know Clark and Diana, but they've never manifested in quite this way. And you know the the look she gives him, like you said, the the look of, of disbelief and resignation, and you know when she finally gives him that kiss, the schism has has reached the heroes, and uh, yeah, it just follows just follows that we're going to have a, an amazing conclusion to this uh, this third issue. I love the line that uh, not all of us have heat vision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and there's no way for him to argue with that. I mean, not everybody can solve the problems by, you know, making somebody, you know, uncomfortably hot. And he, you know, Superman does have powers that, that enable him to use non-lethal force. I guess Wonder Woman could if she pulls her punches, but, you know, he's right. You know, she can't lasso everybody. You know, again, Superman has got to act and react the way that he does. You know, that's, that's his character. You know, that's, that's, that's what the world needs from him. But, but that doesn't mean that, that Diana's point, you know, about this, basically being a fait accompli is is realistic. You know, Superman has to be the idealist and, you know, it, it falls to her, you know, maybe this, this brings her back a few steps from Lady Macbeth, uh, because Lady Macbeth obviously was, you know, in search of power, um, you know, by any means necessary. Diana here is desperately trying to save the world and she just realizes that as much as they need Superman, the they need the ideal of Superman you know, they've got to use a more pragmatic approach. And so she's kind of, you know, sacrificing her own code to let Superman stay pure, basically. Um, I think it's a, you know, a, a real heavy moment and, and one that, that just, you know, drives the story forward with, you know, it's, you know, again, another one of those little quiet moments in between heavy action, but one that, you know, drives the forward, uh, story forward with, uh, you know, the pedal absolutely to the metal. And again, we come back to the theme of Superman as an idea, you know, the strength of Superman as an idea, as this paragon of what superheroes are supposed to be of the right side, you know, of that Superman is more powerful as an idea, even, you know, than he is as a hero. Indeed. And the, uh, the, 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 the final image there before Superman busts out, you know, uh, the image of him standing alone, you know, literally standing on his own, uh, with the uh, the fairly incredible lighting job. For one of the smaller panels in the book, um, that image uh, carries a lot of weight. I, I, could, I understand that they have lots of time considerations. There's so much story being told here, 
but I just think it would have made for a pretty incredible uh, splash single page if they could have had that one shot of Superman standing there alone be its own page. I, just, that, I think that would have been one of those uh, frameable uh, moments in uh, comic art that yeah, I have no complaints for what they did it here. Our next scene sees uh, Superman flying away as fast as he can. We would assume to the gulag, but no, he's making a stop to see Bruce in the cave. And he's trying, he's come through and he's saying, I need your help. And it's, it's an echo of the scene that we saw in, uh, in issue one when he first came out of exile. And Bruce says, we've been through this already. Again, you know, referencing that other uh, sequence in the book. And Superman is begging and pleading Bruce with Bruce to help him, to help him to right the situation. And then we uh, see on the next page the uh, the group the forces Wonder Woman's forces amassing outside the Gulag, giving an ultimatum: you know, surrender or face the consequences. The interplay here between Superman and Bruce is very it's very cool. It's very um, telling of where each one of them is coming from. You know, Superman wants things to be the way they were. He wants him and Batman to be best best friends and teamed up and and solving all the problems together. Bruce, on the other hand, isn't so sure. He's thinking that maybe this Armageddon of, of superheroes might not be a bad thing. You know, it might winnow down problem that, that let, we've been having. Let the gangs fight each other and take care of the problem themselves. Again, yeah. like Ozymandias and Watchmen, yep. you know. Every, everybody is destroyed and now there is peace, you know. Yeah, or uh, no more mutants. Yeah. And then uh, Batman drops the bomb on Superman about Captain Marvel and his sin, what's been going on with him. And uh, it's... It, Superman gets a little spooked, actually, a little, a little scared because he knows how powerful Marvel can be. Marvel can be. Yeah, I think it just adds to. I mean, in the panel before that, even we can see the fear in Superman's eyes just about the situation. Yep. He's like, together we can be the world's finest team, yeah, which is funny because Superman and Batman, uh, you know, where I, for you know those uninitiated <laughs> listening to the podcast, there was a comic called World's Finest for decades and decades, starring Superman and Batman. And the last panel together. on that page is the the best line in this issue for me. So that's what that feels like. <laughs> that's a great one too. I love that. After all the times we've seen, like Commissioner Gordon and and Oracle and everyone else have to deal with Batman being, you know, them still talking and Batman being gone. Yeah, like in the like so in the Dark Knight. In the Dark Knight, when the Trinity's up on the uh, on the tower on the top of the building, and Gordon just looks at Dent, it's like, yeah, he does that. <laughs> <laughs> so after pleading and begging with Bruce, and then Bruce drops a bombshell about Captain Marvel. Marvel's heading for the gulag, just like he is. Superman takes off like a like a shot for the for the oncoming conflict to see if he can you know turn the tide to be the uh, and uh, before it even before he even appears, he sees he sees the dawning horror in Wonder Woman's eyes, and with a giant crack of boom, we see the gulag literally blow up. We see the you know, what was referred to as the powder keg earlier explode. Sequences that would be worthy of George Perez on his on his best day. You know, literally dozens and dozens of of DC heroes in each panel. Um, and here we have the um, the visions that Norman has been having come to fruition. I see Ragnarok at last unfold, as it's put on the, the last page, the last panel of the page with the explosion of the Gulag. Superman is racing to the scene. We don't. Uh, there, a big red streak flies by him, almost knock, and knocks him to the ground. And then we see that it's Captain Marvel standing in front of him. And the last line of the book, the book ends with, Armageddon has arrived. Yeah, I, just, I, I love the, the end of this here. Yeah, and worst of all, I see the desperate hopes of the one man who might yet stop it turned to ash and cinders by a single bolt of lightning. <laughs> wow. Nice <laughs> line. Doesn't get your, 
if this doesn't get your fanboy juices ready for the conclusion, nothing will. No doubt. <laughs> I remember reading this issue when it came out and thinking, oh, man, they couldn't have ended it like this. They couldn't have ended it like this. Come on, you know. It's just it's a great cliffhanger because you're not, I mean, by the end of the story, you're not really sure where Captain Marvel's standing. I mean, he's got that goofy grin on his face at the end of this issue. He's knocked, you know, Superman to the ground. He's standing over him, you know, hands on his on his shoulders, kind of, you know, alpha male triumphantly, you know, lording over him. But you don't know. The last time you saw him, he, he was, li- you know, literally losing his mind and freaking out. So you don't know where he stands there. You don't know. Is Captain Marvel insane? Is Captain Marvel under the thrall of Luthor as Bruce surmises? You know, I mean, you just don't know at the end of the, at this point. Yeah, it's such a comic book convention that uh, it, it seems like the you know it's darkest for the dawn. It seems like you know the hero's hopes are dashed when all of a sudden the other guy kind of leans over and says, "Follow my lead." <laughs> you know, it's like they're watching. Just trust me. And you know, you, you can almost expect something like that to happen. But you know, with the three issues, the 155 some odd pages of backstory to this point, uh, no, it's I'm, I was pretty sure, you know, the first time I read through it, that it's on. And this the depiction of Captain Marvel, again, another just frameable piece of art. Um, as you just look at Captain Marvel, and I, I, I don't mean to get too much of a man crush on him, but that dude is thick and powerful, and he absolutely looks like a match for Superman, especially as he's just standing there over him. And you know that, that look on his face that, you know, he's crazy enough to actually do battle with Superman, and you know, we all know that Superman is, is vulnerable to magic, so we know that, yeah, this is a bad, bad thing. And uh, it's um, heaven knows exactly where it's going to go from here. Adam, we haven't heard from you for a while. What do you think of the climax of this issue? Just, say, yeah, where are we going to go? That's, and, and what's really going to happen, like, like you all said, with uh, the Captain Marvel character. It's definitely a, a totally different view that they've been building up throughout the whole book so far of Captain Marvel because I mean if anyone's read read his character he's always a little bit uh a little bit more lighthearted he's definitely uh, a totally different character in this book so yeah he goes from like slightly goofy to very menacing all in the, all in the pan you know all in just a few issues that's a very good point I mean the um, Captain Marvel throughout his you know, comic book career or whatever was always slightly goofier than Superman. You know, he had like a talking tiger as his best friend and, and uh, you know, Hoppy the Marvel Bunny like we alluded to before and all that. And uh, and now here he is standing over Superman, the only man who could probably, you know, actually take out Superman. And he's got that same, you know, spit curl and, and grand, goofy grin on his face as he did in the 40s comics. But because of the setup, it's just so menacing. You know, it's almost like the grin of a psychotic, you know, in kind of a strange way. That's a good point, Adam. Yeah, I think there's a lot of situations where you kind of have to uh, suspend a little disbelief for the uh, for the purpose of the uh, the story. But um, why? I, I guess uh, Luther thinks that uh, Captain Marvel can be his champion simply because he's controllable, thanks to uh, the Mister Mindworms. Not necessarily because he's human, because I, I don't know why it just automatically follows that just a human uh, or immortal or whatever um, is automatically going to fall on uh, any one particular side of an argument. So I think that maybe Luther's use of him as a champion is slightly disingenuous. Uh, you know, big surprise that uh, Luther uh, may be uh, playing many fronts at once, playing many things against you know against the middle. 
Okay, that wraps up issue three of Kingdom Come. Unless anybody else has some more thoughts they'd like to interject, Ken, Adam, Bill? Not at this point. I think this is. I think we've gone through three quarters of uh, one of the greatest uh, comic book stories ever told, and uh, this is where you know the uh, they they light the gasoline with the match at the end of the story. I mean, um, diving into the you know in issue one, diving into this world is incredible and literally beautiful and very interesting as you find out what the differences are in issue two. You know, you start to see the action begin to rise, um, but, you know, we're still very early in the story. And this is really where, this is where the, the weight shift and, uh, you know, the, uh, the seesaw uh, swings over to the side and, um, you know, the very inevitable horrors of uh, what we've been trying to avoid all along. Well, uh, guess what? They're here, and uh, we're going to have to deal with it. And um, so we're just going to have to pull for our heroes and wonder how the heck they can possibly gather this. I can't wait. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know why, but, but reading this, reading this each time, um, I guess it's just one of those that's so deep that there are always new new things to think of and you know new characters to find the panels and stuff. That um, you know every time I read this, it just almost kind of feels like uh, the first time. So hey, good for me, I guess. <laughs> wow, I just oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> Uh, are we, should we go ahead and uh, record issue four tonight, boys? Or uh, <laughs> if we want to give it a little while. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, these guys have it. to get up early in the morning, so I don't think <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, it'll, it'll probably be a couple, three weeks before we get uh, back to issue four. So, you know, hey, that'll be a nice little teaser for the, the, the good, gentle, strong listeners out there in uh, uh, HHW LOD land. So <laughs> let this be a teaser for all of those of you out there. God bless, don't you think? <laughs> no doubt. Well, thanks for joining us for issue three of Kingdom Come. Uh, if you have any comments, please send them to comments at legionofdudes.com. Also, you can send uh, cake recipes, audio blogs, uh, bomb threats, uh, pictures of your girlfriend, whatever you want. Just send them on there to uh, comments at legionofdudes.com. We'll check them out. We'll read them on the air. Also, you can post in our forums on the thecomicforums.com, the greatest uh, comic book community online in the universe. And check out Half Hour Wasted every Monday and Legion of Dudes every Thursday. Oh, and also tune in, to our, tune in to our cousin uh, podcast, Too Old to Grow Up, hosted by the illustrious uh, Ken Morgan, who is also a member of Legion of Dudes. Another fine podcast awesome. in the uh, HHWLOD family, as it were. Uh, check us also out at legionofdudes.com or halfhourwasted.com. Both of those will lead you to hhwlod.com for news, regular blogs, audio blogs, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. Got some uh, neat offers and uh, things going on there, so check it out. And I think that's it, right? Throw down. Oh, I already mentioned that. <laughs> that was my wife. I'd like to take a, I'd like to, I'd like to take a moment here to, uh, to apologize for uh, the Voice Box Volume 1, The Reckoning. Um, I hope everybody out there does realize that that was a 30-minute long joke. So, um, you know, I thought it was a solo album. It was fun. I loved, I loved every second of it. Brad, Brad, and Brad yelled at me for encouraging you. You're probably, about the radio, you, probably, you probably remember back in the day when Kiss was so popular that each one of them did a solo album. Oh, they absolutely. Each, they all look the same. They all had like each did. That's how I look at the, the voice box. That's, that was your solo album. <laughs> hey, can I be Ace Freely? <laughs> yeah, he was the only one who had a decent solo album, so yeah. <laughs> nice. 
Oh gosh, I, that's uh, that's the one of the four solo albums I have on CD. So uh, that's where I was <laughs> going with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, gentlemen, what a pleasure as always, man. You uh, you all are too kind to uh, let me uh, uh, muddy up your airways like this, but uh, but I appreciate it. And uh, and just like I said the last two episodes, if you guys will let me back, I will look forward to uh, episode four. Well, I think with this cool. with this episode, um, you are officially on the Legion of Dudes more than either Brad or Frank or possibly combined. Ah, victory, sweet victory! <laughs> oh man, well it's a, it's a good thing we're done because I've officially run all out of material. All right, you have material? <laughs> wow! Okay, well, you're high atop Sorry. the HHWLOD Media Center Tower here in beautiful Genosha. We say good night. <laughs> good, good night, night y'all. <laughs> <laughs>